Welcome to the Stolen Reality Podcast. This is where you belong. All right, all you wonderful people. It is Saturday and it's time for another What a Week episode. So welcome to the Stolen Reality Podcast. I am Luke and I am your host. Going to be jumping into the news articles throughout the week. So just like every week, I always say this. There is so much news out there and so many things I want to go over. I think this week I ended up with over 50 articles. So I had to cut them back quite a bit, of course, and just pick the ones that I think are the most fun and the um, things I want to talk about. So I came up with some fun stuff that I think you guys are going to enjoy. But on that note, how I go through my news articles throughout the week is all week long I'm looking at articles and I see headlines that I like and I save them into a little clipboard on my phone and then I email them to myself at the end of the week and then I read through all of them and decide what I'm going to put in, yada, yada, yada. But this week when I tried to email them to myself, it didn't go through. So for some reason, I'm having problems with my email address at lukeatstolenreality.com. So if you have tried to email me there in the last week or two, I probably haven't received it. So I'm really sorry about that. I will contact them today and see what's going on with it and hopefully get that fixed. Hopefully once they do and everything's back up and running, I'll get all the emails that didn't go through beforehand. Uh, But just to be safe, if you want to reach out to me or you tried to reach out to me, go ahead and resend your email in a day or two and I'll, I'll make sure that I get it. All right. With that being said, let's get into today's episode. So, first up on the docket today, this comes from TheGuardian.com. Botanist Stefano Mancuso says you can anesthesize all plants. This is extremely fascinating. And that title's kind of misleading because that's not exactly what he's saying. But there's a good little uh, interview with this man here and it has a transcript from him. So I'm just going to read you a couple little things. So they asked him, to what degree can plants communicate with one another? If you have a spectrum with rocks at one end and humans at the other, where do plants sit? And he responded... I would say very close to humans. Communication means you are able to emit a message and there is something able to receive it. And in this sense, plants are great communicators. If you are unable to move, if you are rooted, it is of paramount importance for you to communicate a lot. So I talked about this a little while ago, how they're kind of understanding now that plants and animals can can communicate between each other. And uh, he just kind of expounds upon that. And he's been doing a bunch of research into it. You can come in and read through all of his research that he's been doing. But it's really pretty interesting. They also asked him, the idea that plants are intelligent is controversial enough, but you've gone one step further by claiming that plants are to some degree conscious. And we're going to get into this a little bit more with other things that we talk about, but he says it's incredibly difficult to talk about consciousness. First, because we actually don't know what consciousness is, even in our case, but there is an approach to talking about it as a real biological feature. Consciousness is something that we all have, except when we are sleeping very deeply or when we are under anesthesia. He says that his approach for studying consciousness in plants is very similar to what we do with humans. He said, I started by seeing if they were sensitive to anesthetics and found that you can anesthetize, anesthetize, there it is, you can anesthetize all plants by using the same anesthetics that work in humans. This is extremely fascinating. We are thinking that consciousness was something related to the brain, but I think that both consciousness and intelligence are more embodied, relating to the entire body. So we had talked about this a little bit before when I was talking about um, consciousness in AI and how nobody really knows what we're talking about 
when it comes to consciousness, but Michio Kaku's idea of um, having a scale of consciousness, he called it quantum consciousness, and it having to do with how much you can interact to the world around us. Well, it seems that the route that this doctor's taking is kind of going um, more so towards that direction, that since these things can obviously communicate with each other, and since plants can interact with their environment, they do have a stage of consciousness. But he kind of took it one step further and used anesthetics on them, and it showed that it has the same effect as on humans. So you're actually shutting down the same kind of quote-unquote neural pathways that you would on humans when you do this to plants, showing that they have something kind of deeper going on. So they said, so you can put a plant to sleep? And he said, we're working to see if it's possible to say that. It's an incredibly difficult task, but we think that before the end of this year, we will be able to demonstrate it. So that's why I said it was kind of misleading. He claims that he can anesthetize, I'm having trouble with that word, plants, but um, he also says that they haven't totally put them to sleep, but he thinks that they will be able to. So it's a pretty interesting little interview here that you can read. It'll, of course, be linked on my site at stolenreality.com, but it's just one more step towards us for one, understanding consciousness, which is huge, and there's going to be some other articles in here down that line a little bit, but also for us showing that everything in the world has a form of consciousness. I mean, in my opinion, consciousness is all around us. We're kind of floating in the waters of consciousness, and we're a condensed part of that. That's just my opinion, but I do think that all living things do have a form of consciousness. I'll make a case for that in another episode. And then moving on, this comes from popularmechanics.com. Scientists finally solved the mystery of how the Mayan calendar works. So I didn't guess, I didn't realize that they were having such problems with this. But apparently they didn't totally understand how the Mayan calendar worked because they knew that it had something to do with the planets, like all calendars do, either stars or planets for the most part. Um, but because of the day count, it has an 819 day count to the calendar. They didn't really understand why that is. So there was a study published in the Journal of Ancient Mesoamerica by two Tulane University scholars and one of them says, although prior research has sought to show planetary connections for the 819-day count, its four-part color directional scheme is too short to fit well with the synodic periods of visible planets. So the way that it's separated into four parts, they didn't really understand how that would work out. But he said, by increasing the calendar length to 20 periods of 890 days, 819 days, I'm sorry, a pattern emerges in which the synodic periods of all the visible planets commensurate with station points to a larger 819-day calendar. So that means that the Mayans took a 45-year view of planetary alignment and it coded it into its calendar that left modern scholars scratching their heads in wonder. So he just kind of took what we already knew about it and they said, okay, well, let's just repeat this into 20 cycles and then see what happens. Um, well, he probably didn't just start with 20. He probably started repeating it and seeing what happened along the way. But he found out that after 20 periods, or after 45 years, it kind of restarts, which is a huge uh, achievement for them in understanding this calendar. Now, the world didn't end in 2012 like we thought it would because of the Mayan calendar, but maybe it's because the calculations were off. Maybe we're heading towards it. Or maybe it did end when CERN smashed all those particles together, and that's why we have the Mandela effect and everything's crazy now. We'll, we'll get into that one in another episode as well. But you can read about his research and what he says about it on this popularmechanics.com article that I will have linked on my website. 
And speaking of ancient mysteries, this one comes from i24news.tv, which is a local news station somewhere here in the world. Hidden chapter of Matthew's Gospel revealed thanks to UV light. So this is, uh, again, a pretty misleading, well, it's not misleading, but it's disappointing um, <laughs> article title here, and I'll, I'll tell you why in a second. But according to British newspaper The Independent, they took UV light and they found an old Vatican library text, which was the Gospel of Matthew. Matthew, and using the UV light on it, they found some new um, additions, some new chapters to it. And they said that the researcher said the newly discovered text is an interpretation of Matthew chapter 12 that was originally translated as part of the old Syriatic translations about 1500 years ago. Until recently, only two manuscripts containing, contained the old Syriatic translation of the Gospels. One of them is in the British Library in London, and another was discovered in the monastery in St. Catherine on Mount Sinai. So this thing dates back very long ago, um, but why I say it's kind of disappointing is because they found that it has the same translation as other translations that we already know about, which is very important to them because it kind of shows the first phase of the history of the text and how the transmission of the gospel spread out around the world. But why I say it's disappointing is because it's not a quote-unquote, new chapter. I thought they actually found, like, brand new writing we had never seen before. That's not the case. But it does show them um, a little more detail about how the Gospels were spread and how the translations of them spread around the world in different times. So it is pretty interesting all the same. And it also shows that with modern technology and things like UV light and... You know, also even I've talked about AI translating old broken texts that we haven't been able to translate, you know, that we're having these huge discoveries now, which is which is also pretty amazing because uh, with our modern technology, when we use it for good things for once, we can do some pretty incredible stuff with it. And then next one, this comes from afar.com. The U.S. could be getting a new national park. If Okmulgee Mounds becomes a national park, it'll be the first in Georgia and the first co-managed by a tribe that was once forcibly removed from the land. So it looks like they're talking about putting a new national park in Georgia around these big burial mounds. So why I think this is very interesting is, for one, it's just really cool. It's really interesting. These giant burial mounds that we find in the United States are interesting in themselves. And also that it's being co-managed by the tribe that actually owns the land is a huge step forward. I think that's pretty amazing. That should definitely happen. But I just watched a documentary not too long ago that I will be doing an episode on um, pretty soon about giants being found in America. Now, stick with me because this may sound crazy. But you know how many giant skeletons and artifacts and news reports have been found in America? 1,500, over 1,500 giant skeletons have been reported in America, mostly in the Old West. And it was just kind of commonplace back then where they would have all these old town reports of like, oh, another giant skeleton was found out on this guy's ranch as he was digging to plow his field. And it was just kind of how they thought that there was a giant race of people that used to live here before. And it was kind of common knowledge. And over time, that kind of got... Um, hidden away more or less, which I'll get into when I do that episode. But 
this guy who was doing this documentary was talking about how all these big burial mounds, when we do sonar scans on them or when we dig into them and stuff, a lot of times they find these giant skeletons in them. And that's why they're such large burial mounds. And there was a native race of people here long before us, I think probably pre-Diluvian because that's where my mind goes for most things. But that was, you know, nine feet tall, just like we see in all these old cultures and all these old stories like I was talking about in the Sasquatch episode where we have these native tribes talking about fighting the hairy mountain giants and all these different things. So I'll get more into a giants episode and all the uh, evidence and artifacts they find around the world because there is a shit ton of them at some point. But it looks like they are making these burial mounds that are claimed to be these mounds of these giants, according to the documentary I watched into a national park. And I have talked about this before, and I talked about this in my Sasquatch episode and in some other episodes, that it's kind of uh, seems to be the thing that when they find areas that are kind of leading towards one of these quote-unquote conspiracies and people start kind of gaining knowledge about it and talking about it, that they'll protect it. And so that's why we see these big national parks being built up where these people claim to see Sasquatch all the time. Or maybe people start questioning, hey, are there giants under these mounds? And for one, you know, the natives don't want them dug up, so that's a, a whole thing right there. But also, um, you know, if they go in and make a national park around it, then it's never going to get dug up. Which I'm not saying we should dig these up. I'm just saying that I, I find that very interesting. So you can come on and read about this. We might have a new national park in the U.S. here pretty soon, which is pretty cool, pretty interesting. And I'll be doing an episode over the giants and the giant mounds at some point in the near future. So next up, this one comes from the archaeologist.com, but there's a ton of news reports coming out about this all the time right now. I'm just linking this one particular one. But there's been this debate going on for quite a while now, or at least, you know, it's been heated recently about whether the ancient Egyptian kings and queens had darker skin or lighter skin. There's a bunch of people talking about evidence on both sides. I'm not going to get in the middle of that and pick a side at the moment. But um, the new Netflix documentary on Cleopatra is coming out. And it's made by Jada Pinkett Smith. And they have cast a black lady as Cleopatra. Well, there's a petition from the Egyptians with over 60,000 people who have signed it. And a lawyer who's trying to sue Netflix to get Netflix to stop the documentary and even to get Netflix removed from their country because they say that they are kind of blackwashing, like everybody talks about whitewashing history, kind of blackwashing their history. So I think that's, I think this whole fucking race talk lately is crazy anyway, but um, I think that's pretty crazy. They're trying to get a whole platform banned from their country and get them to shut down this, this show uh, because of it. You know, we have all these people getting riled up over here when they made the little mermaid, a black girl, or, you know, they changed Disney princesses, skin colors and stuff like that. And everybody gets all pissed off about it. And over there, it's kind of happening in the opposite. They say that, um, African-American people or well, African people, but generally African-American people, cause you know, America is where all this bullshit's going on right now, um, are kind of trying to change their history and change their narrative to show that the darker-skinned people were the kings when they're claiming that that is not the case. 
Again, I'm not going to pick a side on that because I have not looked into it deep enough to uh, know enough to get in the middle of a heated political debate. But it is uh, interesting that it's going on and this world is going insane. So you can uh, read a little more about it here on thearchaeologist.com or just Google the new Cleopatra show coming out or Cleopatra show coming out and you will um, see all sorts of uh, people getting up in arms about this because people have nothing better to do anymore. Maybe I'll do a little digging and, and see where I land on that issue or at least show both sides of it because I've been seeing these um, black people coming out and giving a lot of like really good sounding at least evidence that, you know, we were the more advanced civilization back then. We were in these positions of power. We were these people. And then I you see all this European history saying quite the opposite. And then I guess they don't really have a perfect understanding of whether or not Cleopatra was dark-skinned because they know who her, I believe, father was, but not her mother or vice versa. But they don't know who one of her parents are. So depending on them, she could have been more of a dark mixed race or she could have been more of a light race. It doesn't really fucking matter. Um, but maybe I'll, maybe I'll present both sides of that argument at some point so we can kind of see what everybody thinks. Okay, that's as political as I want to get today. Let's move on to fizz.org. Secret ingredient in durable Maya plaster discovered. So if you look at like Mayan temples and things like that, you know, they use these giant stones, but they also plaster them together. Well, this plaster that they use is incredibly, incredibly strong. Like so much so that it's stuck around for thousands of years and hasn't crumbled. So they don't really, uh, haven't really been able to understand how they made such a strong plaster. So they did some x-rays and used electron microscopes and started digging into it a little bit. And they discovered an organic material in the mix. Something, sib something similar to a carbohydrate. So that led them to asking local masons around there how they make their plaster. You'd think they would have asked them a long time ago if they were trying to figure this out. But they asked around and it led them to two trees, the Chukum and the Gioti tree, both of which are grown in the area today. More specifically, they looked at the tree sapped. The legend had it that the sap was used to make the plaster more durable. So they tried it out. They mixed all the things together that they know they use locally in the area for plaster and they mixed the sap in and they created this very, very strong plaster. So I think that that in itself is very interesting, but I remember seeing something a long time ago. So you know when you look at like these Egyptian and Mayan and old Celtic and all these old megaliths and they look like these giant rocks that were kind of jangled together perfectly and they're so close to each other that you can't even fit a piece of paper into them. And we're like, how the hell did they create these things? First of all, they're giant heavy rocks. How do they lift them? Second of all, how did they fit them so precisely together in every single joint and there's no gaps? Well, I watched something a long time ago about these birds that go down into the jungle and they pick up this leaf that has this kind of acidic uh, property to it and they bring it up to these cliff sides and they use their beaks to rub the leaf onto the cliff sides in circles and it bores holes into the rock because it actually liquefies the rock and that's how these birds build their nest. So the theory is that using... Um, these leaves and these plants that are that are common in these areas, in these jungle areas, they were able to essentially liquefy rocks. So all these 
close-knit joints and everything we see together weren't necessarily rocks they found or carved and then placed on each other, but they actually molded them and poured them in and then they hardened that way. I don't know why more people don't talk about that because I, I heard about that years ago and, and I haven't really heard anything about it since because it seems like a plausible explanation and we, we hear like all these um, ancient alien theories about how they built the pyramids or maybe they used sound technology or they had to have some sort of cutting tools that we didn't we don't know about at this point but there's something that doesn't add up that we can't understand and that seems like a very plausible explanation to me that if they were using natural resources around them and being able to create very very strong mortars you know how much of a of a leap would it be from them mixing this plant into their mortar and creating essentially this this hardening stone that holds the rocks together to doing that on a larger scale and then pouring it into forms and making these entire rocks out of that so i don't know if that's you know that's obviously not the case with every old megalithic structure but there is something to that and i will get to the bottom of it because that's my job here folks but there's a pretty interesting article here on fizz.org that i will have linked on my site that you can come in and read about how they made this plaster and speaking of old ancient civilizations this comes from vice.com archaeologists uncover the ancient gods of a lost civilization in a stunning find so there's this old ancient lost civilization called the tartessos people and they vanished about 2500 years ago and people um equate these guys with maybe the atlantean civilization think that they were very powerful and and um, had a lot of technology and stuff but they kind of just disappeared a long time ago thousands of years ago and they were over in southern spain and they don't know a whole lot about them you know they know some stuff obviously but they're learning more and more all the time well they found these little replicas of human-ish looking faces actually they're pretty human looking faces in these little replicas and they think that they might be their goddesses or um, and also the warriors so two of the figurines they think are probably the goddesses and one is probably one of the tartessian warriors but what's interesting about that is up until this point, all the findings that they've had of these people, when they have their um, their relics of their gods, they're always represented as animals. So this is a really kind of big find that they see the representations of their gods with human faces for the first time. So that's pretty cool, and hopefully it will give us a little more insight into their culture. And again, it's one of those, you know, lost ancient cultures that I talk about all the time that we don't know anything about, but we have all these stories around, and um, the more we find stuff, the more these stories start to lead into actual science. So that is pretty exciting to me. And then now, in a little more modern times, this comes from the Waco Tribune Herald.com. SpaceX giant rocket explodes minutes after launch from Texas. So, you know, uh, we all know SpaceX and we all know Elon Musk and everybody's giving him shit about everything lately. Well, uh, he sent up a test rocket, one of his SpaceX rockets, and it didn't make it so long. It only lasted four minutes. He said that, you know, with anything like this, we don't know exactly what's going to happen. And he was pretty happy about it. He said it was an exciting test launch of the Starship. Learned a lot for the next test launch in a few months. So at least he has a good attitude about it. If I was blowing up billion-dollar rockets, I don't know if I would be that uh, optimistic, but I guess I don't have the billions of dollars to throw away. But he said, leading up to the flight, he gave it 50-50 odds that the spacecraft would reach orbit and not end up in this, what SpaceX calls a rapid unscheduled disassembly, which is just pushing the blow-up button. But he said not blowing up the launch pad would be a win. And they didn't do that. They got away from the launch pad. They got up into the air. So I guess it is a win for him. He called it in the first place. 
And then this is coming from CNN.com. The Great Pacific Garbage Patch, which if you don't know what that is, it's a giant fucking patch of garbage in the middle of the ocean, which is twice the size of Texas at this point, is so big and has been around for so long that it has its own permanent thriving ecosystem at this point. So <laughs> that's obviously not a very good thing. Um, I guess we produce, according to the United Nations Environmental Program, the world produces 460 million tons of plastic every year, and they think that that will be tripled by 2060. So this is, I mean, we all know this is a bad thing, but what's really interesting about this to me is at some point, like when we create an artificial environment like this and then it has its own ecosystem if we go and remove that are we not just killing off another ecosystem now i'm not saying we shouldn't go clean up this plastic obviously it's disgusting and it's harming the environment we should go clean it that's not my point at all don't quote me on that but i know that i have a property up here in montana way back into the woods and it used to be an old gold mine so when they built the gold mine they completely rerouted the creek and they dug everything up and they you know did as much mining as they could and kind of completely changed the land. Well, there's this big restoration project going on now to go back and reroute the creek to how it was originally. And when I was talking to the people who were doing this, which, you know, I think is a really good thing, but when I was talking to people who were doing this, I was like, well, that was like 100 years ago, and the forest is completely regrown. It's a completely new habitat, and to the animals, this is like 10 generations down the road. This is all they know. If you go in and re-tear all this up and rebuild a new habitat, won't they kind of have to start over? Aren't you now destroying what has become a natural habitat? So I'm not uh, advocating that we leave this garbage patch or grow it in any way, but it's just uh, an, an interesting question for me. Maybe you guys got some thoughts on that. You can go on and answer the question on the uh, app on Spotify or email me through my website. And then this comes from sciencealert.com. A first of its kind signal has been detected in the human brain. So this article is pretty dense and I'll let you read through it as much as you want. But essentially, you know, how our brains work is our neurons communicate to each other through our neural pathways and they use the um, sodium ions to fire those pathways back and forth. But for the first time, we found that they can also use calcium. So what they we found with this and what is really interesting about it is through our dendrites, so our dendrites are kind of like the little traffic lights of our nervous system, it decides what signals get a pass and how we understand them working up to this point. Just like you have ones and zeros in the computer and your on off switch, like everything's either on or off, it's a yes or a no, it's a binary. Well, with these dendrites, it works with a and or an or. So if a piece of information gets thrown from one neuron to the other, these dendrites get to decide if it gets added onto like an and or if it goes a different route like an or. But they say that with these new um, calcium pathways that they're finding can happen inside of our brain, it can be an exclusive or intersection. So instead of just saying and or or, it can say or but only if another neuron is also firing in a very specific way. So I know that that might sound kind of complicated. You can read through this as much as you want and it'll explain it a little better than I can. But essentially what is happening is that we have just made a giant leap in understanding how our neural pathways actually work, even though we're nowhere close to it. 
I've talked about a lot of different episodes about us trying to map the brain and if we can ever actually fully map the brain, all the things that we'd be able to do with that, like hooking up to computers and actually being able to visualize, uh, put our memories up onto screens, do all sorts of crazy shit that we could do if we could fully map the brain. And we just, for the first time, like I think a week or two ago, I was talking about fully mapped a gnat's brain for the first time. So we're not even close to the human brain, but this is a big step in seeing that our neural pathways work in a much different and more complex way than we ever knew before. And next up, this comes from LiveScience.com. Stephen Hawking's famous black hole paradox may finally have a solution. So the Hawking radiation emitted by black holes might be able to actually carry information after all. So we don't really understand black holes very much, obviously. We try to all the time, and we learn a little bit here and there, but nobody really understands what's going on. So Hawking um, had this theory that the radiation coming out of it might hold the key to it. Well, they're looking into it, and it seems like the information might lurk in the radiation around the black holes, which are known as quantum hair, which is a pretty fun name for it. But they could, in theory, be retrieved. All that radiation, we could be able to measure it and find out where those black holes are coming from. These findings were published in the March sixth episode of the journal physics letter b i have no idea how many physics journals there are but they're coming up with some fun names for them but it looks like we're one step closer to actually understanding black holes you know as far as i know i think we smashed one together inside of the large hadron collider back in 2012 like i was saying and that's why we get all that uh fun crazy stuff going on in the world right now they destroyed our earth and didn't tell us about it and we're living in a simulation but we'll get into that in another episode but you can go on here and Read this article about how they are finally able to start to decipher what black holes actually are and where they come from. And then this one comes from gagadget.com. Artificial intelligence was given control of a satellite and immediately began tracking Japanese and Indian military bases. So, you know, I've talked about this a lot before because we've talked a lot about artificial intelligence. But um, the big worry is that it kind of gets its own agenda and starts to do what it wants. And at that point, we're kind of in trouble. Well, a scientist created a large language model, kind of like ChatGPT, just to kind of see what would happen if we gave it initiative. And they let it take control of a satellite for whatever reason and the first thing it did is started tracking military bases i mean that's probably a a reasonable thing to do if you had access to all the internet and um, knew all the information in the world the first thing you would want to do is protect yourself and see what's going on with military bases so it makes sense that it would do it but it's also kind of scary that we give a satellite over to ai and it just wants to know what's going on with nuclear sites and missiles so just one more thing to keep in the back of your mind if these things break free that's probably the first thing they're going to be doing is attacking military bases or at least tracking them down to see how they can take over them and speaking of AI, Moderna, as we all know, is the uh, company that helped out a lot with the COVID vaccinations recently. They're teaming up with IBM to put AI and quantum computing to work to work on their mRNA technology using their vaccines. So the companies have said that they signed an agreement that would allow Moderna to access IBM's quantum computing systems to generate uh, and their generative AI models. The agreement comes as Moderna navigates its post-pandemic boom driven by its mRNA COVID vaccine. So obviously after the uh, vaccines came out, they made a whole shit ton of money, maybe a little shystily, and maybe there was a little bit of uh, um, push for them to do that. We'll talk about that in a vaccine episode if I really want to get canceled. But it looks like they are now using AI to help them with their new mRNA vaccines. Which is probably a good thing, because at least, if nothing else, it will be unbiased. 
So if you're afraid of vaccines and you're afraid of AI, now you have something twice as scary to worry about. <laughs> but uh, do your research before you're worried about things like that. And speaking of quantum computing, or actually just the quantum world in general, this comes from NewScientist.com. Strange quantum effect observed in an unusually large object. So I've talked about quantum entanglement before, where two quantum particles that are in completely different locations can have an effect on each other without having any um, in-between, any kind of communication in-between them. And that's what we call a quantum entanglement, and we can use it for computing, and we can use it for all sorts of different things. But for the first time, they've seen it in an object made of hundreds of atoms instead of just a little tiny quantum particle, which is huge. Um, not just like it is physically huge compared to a quantum particle, but that's a huge discovery showing that bigger objects with multiple atoms, hundreds of atoms, can have a quantum entanglement with another object. That leads into so many different roads like parallel universes and like doppelgangers and so many different ideas we could take if we can have full physical atomic structures that are quantumly entangled to other structures. And it looks like they just showed in a lab that you could do that. So we'll see where all that goes, but I think that's pretty exciting. And then another great achievement in science. This comes from thebrighterside.news. Nuclear waste-powered batteries last for thousands of years. So radioactive waste is a big problem. In fact, uh, I, I might just do a whole bit of soda on this at some point, but we don't know how to get rid of nuclear active waste um, because it takes so long. It could take hundreds of thousands or millions of years to break down. So what do you do with that? Like think about, okay, so if we took a big pile of nuclear reactive waste and then we put it into a hole in the ground and then we covered it up and made it all safe and then we put a sign there that says don't touch this well in 500,000 years our culture might be so different that our language is completely lost how are they going to know that that's not a safe place there's a whole theory and a whole like uh, group of people trying to figure this out of what we're supposed to do about that and how we would warn future generations of it. And they, you know, they say things like, well, what about like a skull and crossbones? You know, that that's a pretty universal sign of danger. But what do we do as modern archaeologists when we find something that looks like a warning in a tomb that we would say, oh, well, that's just a curse that they thought was, you know, something to protect their dead bodies. We go and dig them up. So how likely would it be that a future generation, 100,000 years down the road or something, comes and sees a skull and crossbones that we all recognize as something very dangerous, and they go, oh, these superstitious bastards just don't want us looking at their gold treasure, and they go down and dig up all this nuclear radiation and then destroy their world. So they've been trying to figure out what to do with radioactive waste for a very long time. And one of the things that they've come up with is these radioactive diamonds where they kind of um, compress it and hold it down, for lack of a better word, into these little tiny diamonds. And there's a lot more to it than that. And you can read the science behind it on here. But with these little radioactive diamonds, they can create radioactive batteries. So as these materials break down very slowly over time, each time it gives off a part of itself, that has a charge to it and it can be used to harness more energy. So instead of just having our our strong nuclear energy at the time, as it's breaking down over time, it's still giving off little pieces of energy, which is why it's radioactive and why it's dangerous in the first place. But to harness that, we can make batteries. The only problem with that is because of the beta decay is kind of very slow and because of the way it works um, that I'm not going to get into. You can read this if you want to understand how it really works. It's not very powerful. So they 
can't really, they're like, we couldn't really use this for a cell phone battery or a computer battery at this point because it's just not giving off enough voltage. But it is a step in the right direction and it might be a very clean alternative to what we're doing with nuclear reactive waste right now because we don't really know what to do with it. But if we can figure that out, then nuclear energy, unless it blows up and goes catastrophic, would be a pretty safe choice because it's already a very clean energy except for this byproduct. And if we can learn to do something very productive with this byproduct, then it becomes an all-around very safe and re um, not renewable, but um, clean energy that we're using. So pretty interesting. I like it. I'll take a million-year-old battery. You'll probably never hear about it if they do make it work because then you wouldn't have to buy batteries all the time. And planned obsolescence is a thing. And then this comes from WTHR.com. Yes, scientists believe all blue-eyed people came from a single common ancestor. All blue-eyed people share a specific gene trait that led scientists to believe that all blue-eyed people share an ancestor from 6,000 to 10,000 years ago. So there was this genetic shift where before that people only had brown and um, green eyes and stuff supposedly, and all of a sudden we had blue eyes. But I guess it comes from... A clear genetic analysis says that the mutation happened in one chromosome. And so that means that it would have to have been one person. Now, they say that it is a genetic mutation that happened in one person and then spread out over time. We could go down the road that maybe there was some gene altering. Um, going back to my ideas about, you know, that specific time happens to be 10,000, 6,000, around 13,000 in my opinion years ago. And older civilization may have come back up that was pre-Diluvian and uh, did a little gene editing and, and cross-editing. And we see that in a lot of different cultures all over the place. But we see some sort of shift right at that point in time where we all of a sudden have blue eyes. And I'll uh, do an alternate timeline of human history sometime and explain how that might all fit together. But they do agree that it all came from one place. So if you have blue eyes and your wife has blue eyes, I'm sorry you're related. <laughs> Luckily, you're far enough apart that you're probably safe. And then next up, this one comes from fizz.org again. Animal consciousness, why it's time to rethink our human-centered approach. So I'm not going to really read through this too much for you, but essentially um, this article is making a case that when we think about consciousness um, in different animals and different species and everything, we equate it to how we think and how our consciousness works and how that might not be the best model going forward and really understanding different animals and how we do that a lot when we look at like animal rights. So like if an animal like a dog seems to have the same kind of consciousness more and understand us more, we say that that's a pet where an animal like a pig, well actually pig's a bad example because they're actually really smart, but an animal with less consciousness um, or what we would call consciousness and cognitive ability, we say, okay, well that must be food and how that's kind of an unfair judgment because we don't understand consciousness at all in humans. We don't understand what it is, so how can we make that judgment call when it comes to animals? Um, now, I, I eat meat, so I'm, I'm not a vegetarian. That's uh, not the, the uh, point I'm making here. What I'm making is that, like I was saying earlier with plants, we don't understand consciousness in the slightest or what it even means. And I think consciousness is all around us and all living things have consciousness. But this article makes a pretty good case that maybe we should rethink how we measure that when we are 
looking at animals. And I definitely agree with that. Because again, that leads more into the way I think that even your cat and a bug and a tree and <laughs> everything else has its own form of consciousness, just more or less condensed. So read through this guy's justification of why our judgment of animal consciousness is wrong and see if you agree with him. And then almost done, guys. Next up, this comes from technologynetworks.com. There's hope for all of us because gray hair is a result of stuck stem cells. So there's go through this article exactly how gray hair works. And it's not so much that your hair turns gray over time. What it is is that stem cells that sit at the base of your um, scalp, at your little hair follicles, tell your hair the pigmentation that it needs. Well, sometimes those stem cells can get stuck there. And since it doesn't tell your hair as it grows what color it needs to turn and how much pigmentation it needs, then it doesn't have any. And that's how you get gray hair. Well, I'm 34 and I got about five gray hairs in my beard. So this is exciting to me because even though I'm going to look like a silver fox someday soon, they, since now they kind of understand how this works, they're saying maybe they can learn how to unblock those. And instead of having to dye your hair, if they can unblock those stem cells from your hair follicles, we might be able to essentially cure gray hair someday. So that's pretty exciting for people who care about their hair color and don't want to use dye. But you can read through, uh, well, I guess you don't really have to read through. I pretty much summed that one up pretty good. We'll just see where this one goes. And then last up, this one comes from CBC News. $20 million worth of gold and other high-value items stolen from Pearson Airport, police say. No arrests made. Police unsure if items are still in the country. So up at Pearson Airport, which I believe is in Canada... Um, there was a container that came in on a flight and that container got brought into the holding area where it's supposed to be and then it disappeared. This is like the ultimate heist movie. Somebody pulled it off and got away with $20 million worth of gold. They don't really have any leads. They don't know what happened. This is obviously well planned and the people knew it was going to be there. And I think it's pretty sweet. I mean, sucks for the person who just lost $20 million of gold, of course. Sorry to you, buddy. But still pretty cool i'm sure someday they'll make a movie about this but don't worry guys because they do say that they feel that this is an isolated incident so if you happen to be flying with 20 million dollars worth of gold your gold is probably safe all right everybody i hope that uh you enjoyed the articles for today i hope that you guys had a great and safe week and you're enjoying the weekend the weather here has decided to snow again because it's montana and it'll do whatever the hell it wants but hopefully it's nice where you're at and you guys are out there enjoying it you'll be hearing from me again on monday for the mindset mondays episode and then just back to the normal stuff so enjoy your weekend be safe out there everybody <laughs>